0: Ireland's Call with Simon Tierney.
1: This is News Talk.
0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to a special bank holiday show here on News Talk. This is Ireland's Call and I'm Simon Tierney with you live for the next couple of hours as we explore the stories of those who have made Ireland their home, the so-called New Irish, those who have moved here for professional or family reasons. And those who want to make this country their home but may be stuck in the purgatory of direct provision, over the next two hours I'll be speaking to people from Brazil, Africa, the US, Israel, Australia, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria and a host of other fascinating and far-flung places around the world. All of whom now live here in this evolving melting pot that we call Ireland. Please do join the conversation. Text us on 53106. That'll cost you 30 cents. Or email us on irelandscall at newstalk.com. And, of course, you can tweet me as well, at Simon. Now, as part of our preparation for today's show, Newstalk has conducted an exclusive survey of non-Irish nationals living here, asking a series of questions about their lived experience and also, I suppose, whether or not they think Ireland is a welcoming country. That's the big question for today. Of the over 270 people who responded to the survey, 64% felt Ireland was a welcoming place for immigrants However, 60% said they had experienced some form of racism or xenophobia during their time in Ireland. To discuss the results of the survey, I'm joined by a panel of guests. Jocelyn Castro is from Chile and has been living in Dublin for the past three years. Bululani Mfako is from South Africa. He's currently studying in UCD and is a spokesperson for Massey, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. And Abud al-Julali. Uh, ex- excuse me, Aljumali, who is originally from Iraq, but moved to Ireland when he was just nine years old. Guys, you're all very welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on Ireland's Call here on Newstalk. Let me start with you, Jocelyn. Um, you arrived here from Santiago, the capital of Chile, I believe. How long have you been living with us here?
2: Well, I've been here about three years now. I arrived at the end of 2018 in December, to join my now husband. <laughs> okay,
0: so is your husband from Ireland?
2: He's Polish, but he lived here seven years.
0: Okay, so you're a truly international couple. Did you <laughs> meet in Ireland? We actually met
2: in the Philippines.
0: Okay, this, this is just getting very, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is like uh, you could write a movie about your life, uh, Jocelyn. Um, how is it going for you? Do you feel like you're beginning to integrate into Irish society?
2: Well, after three years here, I definitely feel that Ireland, particularly Dublin, is more like my, my home now. But I must say that at the beginning, I, it was kind of difficult for me. It was a bit challenging to, to feel um, adjusted and integrated in the community. Yeah. Um,
0: okay, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly examine that. The pandemic has made the separation between you and Chile even greater, I'm sure. Has it been a long time since you've been a, a, at home?
2: Absolutely. Uh it's been over two years since the last time I was I was in Chile and I miss my family there dearly. But again there are different issues that are happening in Chile so at the moment and given this current situation with the pandemic etc., I still feel really grateful that I'm living here.
0: Great. Um Abood, let me come to you next. You truly are the poster boy for uh the GAA these days. I don't know if any of our listeners caught your speech at Croke Park. Um I know uh hurling in particular has been a a really big thing for helping you to integrate into into Irish life.
3: That's true, yeah. Um I suppose I started uh, hurling on uh, when I was at fairly, at the failure competition and um Thankfully, look, it's been my passion since you know, and it certainly has helped me integrate into Irish society and improve my English as well, and and obviously make new friends and long lasting friends, you know. Um, certainly has helped in that.
0: Um, when you arrived here from Iraq with your family, what was the motivation for coming here? Were you escaping the conflict back home?
3: Yeah. Um. I suppose after the invasion. Simon, you know. Um. Civil War happened, you know, and it was really, to be honest, it was worse than the invasion itself. Um, and after that, you know, people started killing people over there from the same country over identity, you know. Um, Were and you in Baghdad? I'm from Baghdad originally, yes. Uh, so I was in Baghdad, the capital, uh, and you don't know who to trust, you know. Like, like I used to live in a kind of a very, very... kind of the Bosbridge area of Baghdad. And and it was very, very... kind of in terms of army-wise, it was very kind of... um, uh, There was a high tension on it. uh, And to be honest, there was a lot... Pretty much a funeral passes my home every day, you know, uh, and obviously look, I lost obviously family members as well uh, to that uh, civil war, unfortunately, uh, but yeah, we escaped in uh, 2008, um, that was nine years of age at that time, and yes, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened, you know.
0: Can you recall the moment you arrived in in Ireland?
3: I can indeed. <laughs> I can. Uh, I suppose the first thing that hits me going out of Terminal One is is the cold weather. You know, that's the first thing that hits me. But, 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 but uh, but after that, then, uh, I you know, like after a couple of months, I you know, I I kind of uh, fitted in nicely. Um, I remember, I remember going, you know, going home after when arriving at the airport and sitting down at the house and waited for the first half an hour with the electricity not switched off, you know. And I was like, Jesus, why is not that switching off? Because in Iraq, you're used to electricity switching off every five minutes. <laughs> so electricity switches on for five minutes. It goes off in two hours, you know. But here, I was surprised the electricity doesn't start switch off. You know, I yeah. well, that's another thing that, that kind of uh, uh, was kind of was new to me, you know. Um,
0: that's, a, that's a really interesting insight. It's those sort of little things that perhaps we take for granted here in Ireland. Yeah, but yeah. you certainly didn't take it for
3: granted. Oh, Jesus. i tell telling you. I'm, there's a lot of things that op- that when i like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things here when like for example when it comes to school and you know like for example chairs and desks desks you know like, i I just couldn't believe it how people here in Ireland, like children at secondary level or, you know, at education level in general, how lucky they are, you know, and how spoon-fed they are when it comes to education. You know, like, in Iraq, you'd be lucky to... There was no electricity in schools, you know. You sat at the bench that you see in parks, you know, and, and majority of times, like unfair treatment on a daily basis, you know, in the primary schools there, whether it's depending on who you were and, you know, of identity issues, identity crisis at the time, you know. But like coming in here, seeing people, you know, the likes of SNAs and, you know, like teachers and uh, study rooms and everything like that, all oh, the deals there, it's heaven here for education, you know, and rightly so. <laughs>
0: Right. Good to hear a positive uh, story. Um let me come to you, Bululani. You're also very welcome to the panel. Um tell me you are from South Africa, um, but you you came here a number of years ago to seek asylum. Listeners might be surprised to hear that you were seeking asylum from a country like South Africa, where in Ireland we would regard it as as a as a developed country. So what was the motivation to, to do that?
4: Well, a lot of people, including your government, think that it's a uh, the the government, the Irish government, has declared South Africa as one of the safe countries. So they generally don't expect people from South Africa to be claiming asylum, but they have granted refugee status to several South Africans, primarily because the South African government can't protect certain people, Uh, women, for instance, uh, people uh, from uh, uh, ethnic minorities, such as migrants from other African countries who settle in South Africa, uh, and LGBTQ plus people. So. When I traveled uh, to Ireland in 2015, um, I traveled back. I stayed. Oh, sorry. I stayed in Ireland for about two years, and I traveled back to South Africa in 2017 in January. And when I got home, I learned that a young woman who lived down the road from where I lived um, had been abducted and murdered uh, for no reason other than her sexual orientation. Um, and she wasn't the first. Um, she wasn't the last person to be killed for no reason other than their sexual orientation. And I would have experienced other uh, forms of uh, abuse and violence. Um, based what on the part of South range. Africa was that? Cape Town.
0: Cape Town. Uh, yeah, okay. I lived in Caledonia for fourteen That is 14 just years. it's just an unbelievably shocking thing to happen. Uh, um, but I think what what Irish people might be surprised to know, and this is the kind of the paradox of your situation, is that South Africa was one of the earliest countries to legalize. Same-sex marriage back in 2006.
4: I think it was I, the sixth I country in the world. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but but yet persecution of um, of gay people continues to to this day. I mean, the most horrific forms of persecution.
4: Yeah, quite an awful lot of violence. We've had people being bent to death, stoned to death, hacked to death for no reason other than their sexual orientation. Um, Ireland would be very different to South Africa in terms of how laws were changed Um, in Ireland you had a marriage referendum so you literally had to go around convincing um, the Irish public to vote for marriage equality uh, to allow same-sex couples to get married Um, South Africa did not have that we only had 400 MPs um, that we had to convince you didn't even have to convince all 400 of them you just needed to convince a sufficient majority of them to pass legislation not in the constitution but legislation the constitution was negotiated in South Africa in It was passed into law in 1996. And during that negotiation period, there was quite a lot of contention around the inclusion of the word sexual orientation in the prohibition of discrimination clause in the Constitution. Um, Quite a lot of people were not comfortable with it. Um, uh, It took activists, and some of whom were actually gay themselves, who were in the anti-apartheid movement, to to ensure that that uh, sexual orientation was included in the uh, prohibition of discrimination. So it wasn't a, uh, a, a a matter of building public consensus as you had here in Ireland. There was no such time in South Africa where there was public consensus on the right That's of that's really democracy. interesting
0: Bululani. I think that process of, you know, citizens assembly of building consensus was really important to have support behind the legislative changes that happened. Um Tell me now about your your living situation in Ireland. Um, you are living in direct
4: provision? Yeah, I'm in Noclushin Direct Provision Centre in County Clare. Ironically, it was opened in the 1950s to house Hungarian refugees when it was still a military camp.
0: Wow, okay. So a long history um, of, of institution there. Um, how has your experience of direct provision been? Because I know that you're a strong campaigner for its abolition?
4: Well, from the first day that I entered the direct provision system was the 1st of November in 2017. I was moved to uh, Balsaskin, which is up here in Finglas. In Finglas, yep. yeah. Um, uh, that was the first, uh, it was an eye-opening for me because I had never been forced to share an intimate space such as a bedroom with another stranger, uh, but there we were in Balsaskin. Uh. The beds were, there were three beds in one room. Um. So he indicated that there would be three people there, but it was me and uh, another lad from Ghana who arrived on the same day. Um, uh, uh, We went to sleep. It was just the two of us. When we woke up at 2 a.m., there was a third stranger next to us it was breathing like you literally could feel his breath. That's how close the beds are. Uh, Nobody cared to even introduce him to us. We were asleep, and then we woke up, and there was a third person in our room, and so there was no thought at all. Um, about the people who would be placed in that room. Um, uh, That was the first time in my life that I've ever uh, been deprived of the right to work, so I couldn't work. So I grew up actually working with my grandmother. We sold uh, uh, vegetables um, uh, off-season, so planted whatever was off-season in in South Africa um, and made money out of that and made our living through that. Um, uh, But for the first time in my life when I claimed asylum, I wasn't allowed to. Um, work. That was one of the most... Depressing uh, situations when you wake up, you go and chew in the canteen in the morning for breakfast. You go and chew for lunch, and you go and chew for dinner. Always saying please and thank you, um, uh, as if you're an invalid. Um, uh, it takes away your dignity. It makes you feel uh, worthless because you. You're, you're taken from a position where you are actually used to providing for for yourself. And you um, want and to,
0: con- obviously, most people in direct provision, they want to contribute. Of to course, we had lives asylum. before
4: we landed in Dublin and claimed asylum. Um, um, yeah. Many of us would have uh, worked. Um, I was studying and working. I was doing a PhD um, uh, 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 working, uh, uh, supporting myself. And so yeah. people, in general, humanity wants to work towards their own uh, improvement and improvement of the people around them
0: okay now um as i said we're going to look at our survey today this exclusive news talk survey um about the immigrant experience in ireland um jocelyn let me go back to you jocelyn um according to the survey uh, about 60 percent of our respondents have experienced xenophobia or racism in ireland uh, How do you react to those figures in terms of your own personal experience?
2: Mm, Well, personally, I haven't been subject to any kind of of racism or any sort of uh, racial abuse here in Dublin. But uh, I am part of several um, Facebook groups uh, uh, specifically for Latinos and or Spanish speakers and those are more common than you think there are there are several uh cases where people have been uh racially abused in the laws or in public transportation sometimes in um O'Connell Street and um it's unfortunately more common but this is uh, I must say it's not the entire Irish society obviously this yeah. is this is very very um very segmented i would say sure
0: um yeah so this this survey you know it's a it's very much a snapshot this was 270 non-irish nationals who responded to our survey but it does give us a sense um abood from your perspective how has it been as an iraqi native living in ireland have you had any experience of this
3: um well, there certainly has, um, you know, it certainly has. And it's not really a kind of an Iraqi kind of perspective. It would be more of a kind of a Muslim uh, perspective or Middle Eastern person, you know. Um, and look, you you would, like in parents now, you know, how the way Islam is looked now, you know, like in the Western uh, societies all looked at negatively from, from uh, you know, Western uh, media when it's not the case, um, you know. And I suppose things like, you know, my involvement in, in Irish society, uh, like I do a lot of advocacy work in justice, diversity, equality, integration and inclusion. Um, and that's really what, you know, Islam is all about, you know. Uh, and when it comes to the... Uh, whether it's, you know racism uh, here in this country it's certainly like Ireland is one of the um top countries where racism is not as, is not as bad as other countries you know in EU member states or any part of the world right but
0: let me bring in bulani there um how, how would you would you agree with Abood that ireland is is has a low level of racist abuse on
4: I think by 2019, an EU agency published a report that Ireland was actually amongst the top three countries where particularly black people experience racism um, and violence uh, associated without racism. And so um, we would be coming from a very different perspective on that when you have the uh, Economic and Social Research Institute uh, telling us that uh, black people also experience racism and discrimination in the workplace um in the labor market um, you i'm sure you've read about uh, the woman who was pushed into uh, uh, the river um uh, we've read numerous times about people being attacked on the streets in Dublin I've been called a nigger um I, I think i'm fortunate enough that the racism that i would experience would either be more structural racism such as being you know treated differently by the Irish state so other through the way that it treats other people or very subtle forms of racism. So people, for instance, just reaching out to touch my hair. Like, my, I have dreadlocks. Like, people, apparently white people are curious about black people's hair. They just want to touch your dreadlocks in the bus. Uh, like,
0: a gross invasion it. of privacy, for a start. Violation of, of my body. Like, space? It's like,
4: yeah. Literally, it's not even my space. It's part of my being. So
0: I, you're saying someone on the bus would come up and just touch
4: <laughs> your hair. Or they would ask you, do you wash your hair with normal shampoo, like? Do I go to Tesco and ask for abnormal shampoo? I don't think so. But these are things that things that are very easily to brush off. Uh, it's that,
0: kind of a quiet ignorance.
4: It is, is uh, very subtle. Very. Uh, uh, I don't even think the people who do those things consider themselves to be racist. I don't, I think they would be very shocked if you actually told them that you know you are being racist by doing this. they would be very. Uh, I, I don't. Don't think they can. Uh, 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 in the the artistic things, that might think that a person who is racist would be somebody who would call you the n-word for instance they wouldn't consider themselves to be that way
0: your situation is interesting because um abood was saying that racism in in his personal context might be to do with islam or his identity as a muslim your situation is interesting because you sought asylum um based on your sexual orientation so do you feel comfortable uh, uh, do you feel comfortable in expressing your sexual orientation in Ireland as a country that you came here for asylum for that particular reason?
4: I think for us as asylum seekers in general would have a very different reason for being here. One, the number one priority for us is safety. So when I walk around Dublin um or Limerick or Galway, or Wexford, um I certainly don't feel um that my life is in danger in any way. But you do have that uh, uh, experience of, you know, the very fact that you look different might be uh, uh, seen as a negative. Like I used to live in Dublin for about two years and my experience of life would be very different to a person who, a white person who lived in Dublin as a homosexual person. Um, very distinctly different. Like You get fetishized in the LGBTQ plus community. There is currently a campaign by the Gay Project, in uh, it's based in Cork, challenging uh, racism amongst gay men, um, uh, because you see quite a lot of uh, 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 fetishization of the foreign other. Um, people have all these kind of myths about black people, um, about black men. Um, they expect you to have to behave in a certain manner, or the most common thing that they would ask for online, like a picture mm. of your BBC, they call it. Yeah, right. um, and if that is your experience as a gay person, it would be very distinctly different to a Dubliner, for instance, a young man, who, a gay man who was born um, in Finglas. Um, they won't go online and be constantly bombarded by text asking them about their. App.
0: Okay, um, so let me go back to you a bit there for a second. Um, one of the comments that came in about whether or not Ireland is a welcoming country this was on the survey one of our participants they said that irish people seem very insular minded and will not open themselves to outsiders or blow-ins and i i wonder is there is it difficult for uh, non-irish nationals to make friend to actually make friendships with irish people sometimes
3: um well it, it, you can make our friends, you know, you know, you can be from a different identity, you can integrate into our society without a bother. Uh, like, I mean, with my from my side, uh, and with my story, and I suppose from a GAA perspective, like one of the common things in GAA, or whether it's after a championship match or whatever, you know, is that the lads will go on to lo- local parish for, you know, pints and whatnot, what right? Now... I'd, I'd sometimes go with them, but I'd order a cup of tea, do you know what I mean? And, you know, so you'd have all the lads, 30 lads, i would say, lads, can we get 29 pints and one cup of tea, please? <laughs> so, it's... it's so that's that to me. That's uh, no problem whatsoever. And look, I'm actually proud of that. Um, yeah. And thank but you me. aren't
0: made to feel uncomfortable. About
3: no, this. no. Like, look, there's always a sense of unwelcoming from a person who's of, of who's, who's not from Ireland coming into Ireland. Okay, there's always a sense of that, right? In terms of going into different, whether it's a workplace, whether it's a, the local GA club, or whether it's whatever, really. But it's up to the, you. See, it's up to that person in terms of their their persistence and their dedication. And and their willingness of having an open mind, you know, is what makes them kind of integrated into Irish society. And that will, that will happen indirectly, you know. Like, it'll have to... It would not happen overnight. Like, you know, you'll have to go... you have to go to your daily Tuesdays and Thursdays training, Saturday or Sunday match, you know, and you have to do that persistent over a monthly basis. And it will come by, you know. Persistent dedication is, is the key for everything. Simon.
0: Yeah. Jocelyn, um, a number of our respondents did say they did point out that they felt that Irish people could be quite cliquey, that it was difficult to break that exterior shell, that they might seem welcoming in a sort of a superficial way, but to actually make Irish friends as a foreigner was tricky. What would your thoughts be on that?
2: I completely agree with that statement. Actually, uh, in my own experience, it's been quite challenging to meet uh, Irish people. I've been trying to engage with the Irish community Several times, but I also understand that and this is ha- something that happens usually in smaller countries. That um, you know, you have your neighborhood, you grow grow up there, and then you go to school. So you have your friends from neighborhood, and then from school, and then you go to college, and those are your friends. And then your circle friends, it's pretty much settled. And then you know when. Someone else is arriving and trying to trying to break into that into those tiny circles. It's it's more or less complicated. I would say that uh, the relationships are not really that deep. They're they're more superficial in that sense. It's not that they're being um, disrespectful or anything. Uh, actually, the opposite. Irish people are very polite in general. But uh, getting getting deeper connections is something that. Uh, I've found that it's it's more challenging to get here.
0: Fascinating to hear the perspectives of the three of you, Um, Bululani Mfako from South Africa. Thank you for joining us, Abu Aljimali. Thank you for joining us on the programme. And Jocelyn Castro, really appreciate your input as well. Now, I'm joined by a woman in studio who a lot of you will be familiar with from your TV screens. It's Brianna Parkins, reporter with Ireland AM on Virgin Media 1. And of course, columnist with the Irish Times. Brianna, thanks so much for joining us on Ireland's Call. Tell me, I'm interested because so many hundreds, if not thousands of Irish people travel to Australia to work and live. But why isn't it reciprocated the other way?
5: You know, it's strange when people say, you know, where are you from? And I say Australia, in Ireland, they're like, what are you doing here? Like, is there some kind of a mistake? Why did you come here? It's sort of this, I think, I blame Home and Away, to be honest, uh, with this <laughs> fetishization of Australian culture. And you know what, like, it is a good lifestyle. The wages are higher. There are many reasons that Australia attracts migrants from all over the world, not just as island. In fact, we're a country made for immigration. Our whole country has been made by people coming over and setting up a life. So, and also, it's a large country physically, with not that many people in it. Massive, like Canada. Yeah. We're about the size of America, I think, without Alaska and Hawaii and a bit of another state, but around that size, and we have 25 million people, which is five times the population of Ireland. But we're not. We're bigger than five times the size of Ireland, if you get me. So yeah. there's a lot of big empty space in the middle uh, without too much urbanisation or cities or anything like that. But there is an
0: Australian community in Ireland, is there? Or
5: very, very or are you
0: just absorbed into the rest
4: of
5: us? Well, there's so little... Like, I'll tell you a story. There's so few of us that when I arrived, the embassy got a hold of me via Twitter and said, Hi, do you want to come round? Uh, like, how you going? <laughs> um, and Simon, at the time, who was at the embassy... Um, It was like, we have this little stash of supply cupboard at the back of the embassy and there was like Tim Tams and Vegemites. Like, if you just get homesick, you just pop on in. Like, that's how few Australians are in Ireland. Not that many of us. There were loads before the recession. So many of us. There were lots of Australian bars. There was Australian themed cafes. Then the recession hit and they went home and they didn't seem to have to come back yet. And I think it's odd because the Irish actually enjoy Dublin more than London. And London, it was sort of this, This that's uh, what you did when you left school, was you went to London for, for a year, yeah. the gap year. Um, but they can't stay in Dublin or Ireland because the house prices are too high and the wages are too low for them to, to hang around. So that's what we're seeing, as, I think, the the population of Australians dwindling in Ireland now. Yeah,
0: that that is interesting. Uh, one thing I did want to chat to you about, Brianna, is because this program is obviously about immigration, about people who are non-Irish nationals but have made this country their home. And I'm interested in the lexicon of human migration and the way we talk about it, I think, is, is often controversial because I would imagine that a lot of people would consider you to be an expat as opposed to an immigrant. But is there a difference between an immigrant and an expat?
5: To be honest, uh, I always get really frustrated when people call me an expat, but then would turn to you know a Brazilian or a Polish person and, and assume that they're an immigrant. And I think expat is a very loaded term. It means someone coming from a, you know, a richer country or a more developed place, and they're just here stopping off for a tour, whereas an immigrant has to move somewhere for economic reasons or for other reasons. they They, they can't stay in their home country. So you never really hear... Irish, the Irish in Australia aren't called expats regularly; they're called immigrants. Are they? Isn't more, yeah, there's more of an understanding. And I think it also depends on on what job you're doing. So if someone yeah. was overworking in Australia as like, I don't know, a, a legal consultant or some kind of like job that requires a suit and you don't actually know what they do, that kind of thing, they'd be called an expat. Whereas if someone was working down the mines or on the roads or on building sites,
0: which a lot of Irish people are doing,
5: yeah, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the infrastructure in New South Wales without the Irish. And I can tell you now that there's there's an amazing kind of a sort of unofficial mafia going on. So all the Irish contractors get all the the roads and tunnels. It's a whole um it's a whole business network that the Irish have built up over time. It's actually quite amazing how they support each other. Um but yeah, they they're classified as I would say more immigrants because of their jobs.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um so British people or American people in Australia would they more likely to be called expats?
5: No, not the Brits. Um, we, I think the Brits are the highest number of immigrants we have coming to, to Australia. So we just call them POMs and they would be considered.
0: Uh, yeah, of course.
5: Yeah. Well, it depends. I think a lot of the times people get unfairly lumped as backpackers as well. And that's a really loaded term. That means they're just passing through. We don't really have to take care of them. Um, they party. They don't really care about Australia. Whereas, you know, English and Irish people who do move and want to set up a base, it takes them a long time to break out of that backpacker. Kind of how, how are
0: um, how do australians view irish people i speak speak really frankly now this,
5: this is a question i get asked a lot and people go you know oh god you must have such a bad picture of the irish in australia i was like, well why I was like you know australians are racist but like we're proper racist so we're not going to discriminate against white people we're going to discriminate against people who look different to us who are very visibly other um but then people say look we we sent the worst of the irish to australia and what do you mean? It's like, you know, there are people in the towns who couldn't get jobs again, like people who are working maybe on building sites, manual labourers, that kind of work. Um, and I get quite offended because my family are Irish immigrants and they were working class. But it's kind of this thing of like, oh, only people who have to go to Australia go to Australia. And that sort of brings the idea of the Irish down in, in the minds of Australians. Australians, I don't really think, have strong opinions on the Irish being there. We basically view you as, as an extension of ourselves with different accents, I think. Yeah.
0: And because I, I, I sometimes think that, and I, I think you've written a bit about this in some of your columns for the Irish Times, we, we do like to talk about ourselves in the third person in the sense that we, we often have quite a fanciful view of ourselves. We think we're great crack. We think we're really welcoming. Um, you know, when we go to international sports events like the Euros and the World Cup. We don't really go to the World Cup <laughs> much anymore. Um, but when we do, we, we have quite a high opinion of ourselves, would you say?
5: I would say it's it's not without reason. Like, you know, the Euros 2016, everyone fell in love with the Irish. Generally, when the Irish come to Australia, they're, they're very well received. Um, and, and that kind of, I guess, culture of... I guess, kindness of of looking out for each other, of, of being sound. It's kind of this, this uh, it's like a constitutional duty to be sound, I feel like, in mm. Ireland. Um, but this is the interesting theory about peach cultures and coconut cultures. So peach cultures are very soft on the outside, but at their core is a bit of a hard centre where the stone is. Coconut cultures tend to be a bit harder to crack, but on the inside they're very soft. And I feel like Australians tend to be more coconuts. So a bit, we're a bit abrupt, to be honest, like we're prickly. If we don't like it, we'll just say it. But once you get to know Australians they're very like very loyal, very inclusive, very mindful of each other and will really look after you. Whereas I feel like the Irish are the other side, they're very friendly, very polite, um, to your face, but it's hard to really infiltrate um Irish society and, and to really be included. And I think we've talked about this with lots of um with other immigrants to Ireland about how hard it is to find a friendship group because so many people, you have lots of friends in different places, but so many people have the same friendship group from when they were in kindergarten all the way up to adulthood. And it's almost like, well, why do we need to make more friends? It's a I've, little cliquey, isn't it? Yeah, accidentally. I don't think it, it's meaningful. I don't think it, it's meant to be, but it is very hard to infiltrate as an outsider.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I wanted to do um a quiz with you. I wrote this quiz especially for you, Brianna. <laughs> I'm excited. Okay? Now, I, I have been fortunate enough to go to Australia. I was there about four years ago, backpacking, as you do. And um, uh, I loved my time there. And it gives me a unique insight to writing this quiz. So are you ready? Okay, what you I'm have ready. to do is you have to tell me which is better or which you prefer. Okay, Okay? this is going to be really revealing about your true character (laughs) and whether you're a coconut or a peach. Okay, I'm ready. All right, here we go. So which is better, Irish beaches or Australian beaches?
5: Hands down, Australian beaches. What? You answered that question way too fast. Hands down. I remember when I went to La Hinch for the first time and they were trying to sell me, like... Oh, rent a surfboard and you get a free hot shower at the end. I'm like, that is so grim. But That is like the treat at the because beach. Because you're going to have
0: hypothermia, yeah,
5: basically. And I've been to Irish beaches and everyone's like getting changed under their towels. Everyone's turning purple. No, I, I love, I like going to Irish beaches, but I, I love Australian beaches. More. Okay,
0: I think you'll recognise this. Any of our listeners who've been to Australia will recognise that every sandwich board on the coast in Australia has this written on it: smashed
5: avo or full Irish. Smashed avo. <laughs> And I've seen what the Irish have done. Why do done you have to
0: abbreviate everything?
5: Quicker, All right. Australians <laughs> don't have time. We have deadly spiders. We have snakes. We have uh, constant natural disasters. We don't have time to sit around and chat. So it becomes afternoon, becomes avo, avo avocado, becomes avo, right? We don't I love time. that
0: afternoon and avocado are the same <laughs> words. Yeah, avo, avo, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, fig rolls or tam tums Tim Tam, sorry.
5: Oh, Tim Tams, fig rolls are, are rank. Fruit has no place being in a dessert. Fig
0: rolls are delicious and I won't hear anything <laughs> bad said about them.
5: Uh, the didgeridoo or the tin whistle? Um, I can play the tin whistle. Can you? So I, my granny brought one back from Ireland once just to torment my mum and I taught myself tin whistle over three grueling weeks for my parents probably and I, I love the tin whistle. Excellent, that's lovely. Um, this is an odd one. The badger
0: or the kangaroo? It's a tricky one.
5: Both are often seen as roadkill, but yeah. they're also quite cute. Badgers also will bite you, though, and try and break your shin. But I've never seen a badger. Kangaroos will box you in the face. No. Yeah, that is true. No, that's I that's just in cartoons. No, they they will attack you only if you go up to them. It's like, like badgers will tend to just come out at you more than And anything. they only
0: really come out at night yeah. Kangaroos are there all the time.
5: Kangaroos also can't walk backwards. Can they not? Yeah, so the two coats on the Australian shield is the emu and the kangaroo. Neither animal can walk backwards. So the whole point is Australia is a progressive country. And we're the only country to eat our national mascots because we both eat emus and kangaroos. Have you eaten kangaroo? I have. It's a really lean meat. Uh, It's really high in protein. And And
0: also, it's not in any way endangered. There's a lot of kangaroos. No, unfortunately,
5: we have to have culls of them. Yes,
0: indeed. As sometimes we have to do with badgers, unfortunately, too. Um, Okay, this is an interesting one now. Guinness or 4X?
5: Oh Guinness, hands down. Thank God, so I'm not a Queenslander, and something in forex sends them a bit, a bit loopy. <laughs> like we say, something's a bit beyond the banana curtain. We're talking about where the bananas grow in Queensland. Like they're just a different breed. Apologies to any Queenslanders listening, but you, you had it coming. <laughs> okay, um, cliffs of Moher or Uluru? Uh, Uluru, because every time I go to the cliffs of Moher, I just see fog. In fact, actually, no, at one time I came in with a local and we went through like a back way and I was finally able to see the actual cliffs. My favorite part about the cliffs is the disappointed Americans getting off the bus in their rain ponchos, just unable to see things. (laughs) The rain's coming in sideways. That's what really gives me joy at the cliffs, you know, not the actual cliffs. Okay, final
0: question. Um, Aussie rules or GAA?
5: So I actually would prefer GAA now. I, I never liked Aussie Rules because I, I come from Western Sydney. It's a big NRL, so rugby league place. And oh, of course. Yeah. AFL was, was banned. So I'd have to say I've really gotten into GAA. Have you been last. to Croker? I have. I, I popped my Croker cherry. I went. I fell in love. You can BYO your own snacks there game changer. Mm-hmm. I loved the atmosphere. I loved that all the fans were sitting together and you had like, you know, a man in one jersey who was playing with kids in another jersey and everyone was just really getting on and it was just
0: yeah, it's a really it's a really special game. Quintessential experience to go to Croker. Brianna Parkins, presenter with Virgin Media and columnist with the Irish Times. Thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you in studio. Um, a few more of your texts coming in. Keep them coming. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. One texter says, in response to our earlier panel of guests. As a non-Irish national, it is incredibly difficult to make friends with Irish people. It's almost as if they're scared of foreign nationals and very cold to you if you look differently. I was told how friendly Irish people are, but my experience has been very different. We're talking about the experience of the non-Irish community in Ireland. Please do join the conversation. We want to hear your views. I'm joined now by a caller. On the line, Nina. Nina is from Poland, but has made Ireland her home since 2008. Nina, thank you for joining us on Ireland's Call. How are you?
6: Hi, Simon. It's nice to meet you. I'm great, thanks.
0: Tell me, it's been particularly challenging for the Polish community over the past year and a half. It's been very difficult for you to get home. When was the last time you were home to see your family?
6: Um... I was home around October 2019, uh, so it, it's been a while, and it's strange enough because Poland is not as far away as the Philippines, Africa, or other countries. It's basically a, a stone's throw away, and it's like um, um, a little bit surreal what COVID has done to everyone. In Ireland and outside, it's it's it's, uh, it's really uh, something new that we all have experienced recently and it's uh, it's another positive experience but it's great that we are hanging on and and we are surviving and hopefully in the future uh, I will be able to go home and visit my family.
0: And your mom in particular I understand has has been unwell.
6: Yeah, she had a she had a heart surgery um, actually uh, the time when that covid hit and uh you know I couldn't go home and visit her. I was also working in the hospital at that time and afterwards she she had actually two surgeries since and it's difficult to look after people here in ireland and work, work in the healthcare when at the back of your head you cannot go and visit your own mom and that is a a little bit of a challenging situation but um this audition is fantastic because you can see how how much people appreciate ireland for who you are you have a great sense of empathy and even though i couldn't go home during that time i had a lot of friends and 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 a lot of people being very kind to me just because of that even though they were going through uh, tremendous hardships in their own lives so i think that ireland is a wonderful wonderful country where the people who are very empathetic compassionate yeah. and you have this tremendous ability to to want to help even if you can't do anything you are even offering to have it's beautiful
0: uh, th- that's that's great to hear. Uh, that from someone in the Polish community. Obviously, you're one of the largest immigrant communities now in Ireland, and indeed have been for 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 a number of years. Um, tell me, you are someone who has really taken integration to the next level. You've even been learning Irish, Nina. I understand.
6: I did. It's a beautiful country, believe it or not. And yeah, tradition comes out of roots out of it and who you are. So I thought when I came to Ireland, I thought it would be only respectful enough to learn uh, even rudiments of it. So I went into Conran and and believe it or not, there is a level zero of Irish. So I started from that. Now I am not fluent uh, and I am not advanced, but I have rudiments of Irish and thanks to that, I understand more about your um, poetry, music, literature, a personality, uh, language really uh, opens the doors to understanding who is behind the face, you know. And you can't hide the the true nature of of a, of a person when you were raised by a certain way or you know. Traditions are very strong, powerful. You know, Nina, things. I'm
0: going to have to put you on the spot now. Do you do you know any Irish phrases?
6: Oh well, like everyone else, for example, "Codd is an or is it, my uh is Polonok May? That means I'm Polish. And I, you know, when I went to that level zero thing, we we had a fantastic teacher. She she was a primary school teacher, and she was teaching uh, things like parts of the body, like 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 what is it, or 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 love leg like, or something. You know, we were like learning uh, very 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 basic things, but in a, such a fun way that I could at the beginning. Uh, it was difficult for me to, not to understand why people are using Irish in their daily life. But then I understood that first, I think the English bet the Irish out of you, and then the Irish bet they try to beat the Irish into you again. And there's this general resentment towards the Irish language. But um,
0: Okay, to well, me, listen, it's, Nina, It's it's uh, it's... Fantastic effort on your behalf to, to integrate through through the language. That's just a fantastic news. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you, on Ireland's call. Um, I'm joined now by J- Jalil Rizvi. He is originally from Pakistan, and he arrived in Ireland in 2007. Jalil, you're very welcome to Ireland's call. How are you today?
1: Hi Simon, I'm very well. Yourself?
0: Very good, thank you. Um, listen, I'm keen to get a sense of your trajectory here in Ireland because you've had an extraordinary journey. When you first came in here, you were working as a sales assistant in Centra. I understand.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: And what was that experience like as a newcomer to Ireland?
1: It was very different experience working in the Santa shop, which was so, so alive the whole time. Everybody was coming to Dublin City Center was walking through to that center and especially with the nightlife they were coming in buying their obviously alcohol before heading to the nightclub, and they will be all so friendly, be also open to obviously talk to you so that was great experience working in that central shop
0: and then, and then you moved the on to. You moved on to Super Quinn then, um, which then eventually, of course, became Super Value. But those experiences in working in shops helped you to develop your English skills, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely, yes. That really helped because that was the only obviously, time when you're interacting with the people directly. And you can talk to them. They can question them. They can question you. So that was a very nice way of learning English with them.
0: Now, for about six or seven years then, you began to work as a taxi driver and you worked a lot of nights as a taxi driver. What is the experience of being uh, in that job, someone from, um, from Pakistan working with people, Irish people late at night? Was that a challenging experience for you?
1: Yes, Simon, can you hear me?
0: Oh, I can hear you. Yeah, we just lost you yeah. there for a second. I was just asking you about your experience of working as a taxi driver, particularly at night time, Jaleel. Was that a challenging experience?
1: It was quite challenging, but obviously, as you know, dealing with the people at nighttime, they would be obviously having after a few drinks, going into the places or coming out of the places, and they would question you certain things which obviously wouldn't like to answer and then if you don't answer the appropriate obviously and then they will be obviously getting more defensive but the only way to survive in these circumstances was just to be polite and just do not get into arguments and just be nice as much as possible because i always knew like their journey is only for a few minutes and once they're out of taxi like it doesn't matter
0: Okay, so because there, we we conducted research, we conducted a survey, Jalil, for today's programme, Ireland's Call, yeah. and sixty percent of our respondents said that they had experienced some level of racism or xenophobia. As a Pakistan as a man from Pakistan working as a taxi driver, did you yeah. experience that?
1: It was not everybody majority of people were uh, really nice When they will speak to you. They will obviously get to know you They will be obviously uh, Talking about when you came how you came uh, With your family you just try to communicate them nicely and more majority of people were nice But obviously as you know you find these elements everywhere who mm-hmm. would be rude and would be extremely racist but during the 2014 2015 when there was mass immigration into Germany and there was an issue with ICs in Iraq. At, at at during that time, I found it very very difficult to drive taxi because everybody was just simply thinking, "Oh yeah, he's one of them." Um, okay, ICs so what you're
0: saying what you're saying is one of the most disturbing undercurrents of casual racism is that because you might have brown skin, that you are lumped in with another group of people who you have absolutely no relationship to you i mean how do you how do you manage that level of ignorance
1: that that was the hardest part obviously driving taxi and then meeting people and then being accused and all that but obviously with time obviously things change and a lot of people obviously try to understand obviously you can't just brush everybody with the same brush you know so it, it improved but that that was the during the whole taxi career that was the hardest part between 2014 and 15 not everybody was questioning but good few of them okay and
0: one of the more interesting aspects of your story i suppose jaleel is that you decided to hang up your car keys so to speak and you trained at the king's inns and you in the last year have been certified as as a barrister
1: Yeah, in fact, actually, I think there is a mistake of the year. I qualified actually in 2021, and I was called to bar on the 29th of September by was Frank Clark, and that was actually this year. Yeah, that has been extraordinary, obviously, journey. I started in 2016, and uh, I I started with immigration and asylum law. Then I moved into my legal studies, which is two years, and then I moved into my BL, Barrister law, from 2019 into 2021, two years. And now I am training as a, as you know, as a barrister, you must uh, do the for one year with the senior barrister. So I'm practicing with a barrister called Shannon Haynes. And during my legal career, I was working in senior clisters for almost three years. So that had been extremely extraordinary experience with Irish people. A lot of Irish people would as be like moving from Canada, America, Australia, and they would all like to bring their family home. Like, for example if they are in relationship with an Irish citizen or the US citizen. Or some of them were applying for uh, Irish citizenship based on their ancestors because under the citizenship act nineteen fifty six you can if if you have a grandfather born on the island of Ireland. So a lot of people were claiming Irish citizenship through that route. So that was really good experience and Dealing with Irish people, being a Pakistani person, and helping them in immigration—that was an extraordinary experience. So, being so, a being
0: a non-Irish national and a barrister working in this area has probably helped you to have a a, a different level of empathy for your clients. Perhaps oh,
1: totally, totally, yeah. That was obviously very different experience than driving a taxi, but because obviously, as you know, when you're dealing with certain type of people and obviously at night when they had few drinks but dealing with somebody who knows who you are and what is your capability is totally different experience.
0: Jalil, an absolute pleasure to speak with you and congratulations um, on on your work at the bar. Um, Jalil Rizvi from Taxi Driver and now a barrister at Law, thank you for joining us. Extraordinary to hear Jalil's story. Please do get in touch with your own stories, or indeed, if you are an Irish national, we want to hear from you as well about your own experiences of immigration in this country. We're moving to um, a different guest now. Um, Andy is a Brazilian man. He is living in Dublin. He arrived here in 2012. Andy, you're welcome to the program. You've been here nearly 10 years at this stage. I'm curious to know, what makes you want to stay here in Ireland year after year?
7: Well, I think one of the, the biggest reasons is just like the first time I came here, I felt very welcomed and that made me uh, consider like staying here, living here and like okay, literally like getting alive um, especially because it's uh, culturally different from where uh, I'm from. And then things uh, year after year started to happen more and more, uh, which really made me feel uh, like that, like Aaron is my second home, like the way I live here, the opportunities I had. And then also the fact that i being been living in another country and speaking different language, meeting different people and being able to actually contribute with. The, the social um, aspect of the community and I think like I started teaching dance and I start to integrate with more people and like get to meet other people who actually didn't have uh, get any um, approach before uh, in dance or in cultural uh, aspects, and that was like yeah it's something that I can actually uh, make it use of my knowledge Pass it on. And maybe somehow, like in the future, people will uh, take that uh, as a consideration, uh, like being a foreigner in a different country. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much what really... Um, it kind of like encouraged me to stay and then again things happened and okay like, so you're yeah.
0: you're feeling quite integrated now after nearly a decade when you first arrived here andy what sort of visa were you on back in 2012 then
4: so i had the, the student
7: visa and yeah because i came to learn the language so i didn't think about anything specific so i had the, the student visa at the moment that back in time
0: Okay, so when you arrive here as a Brazilian on a student visa, that allows you to stay for, is it six months or a year?
7: Back in time when I arrived, they had, uh, there was longer. It was like a year. You could stay six months, you could do, uh, work four hours, and six months, you could work 20 hours, and that will allow you to stay for three years. Now the regulations, uh, they changed. So you can only stay two years, which is uh, eight months' is, uh each year, like, they counted three years a month, and then you have to renew each uh, eight months. So that changed now. Okay. But, when I, yeah, but then when I got here, was uh, I could say, like, a three years.
0: Okay, so then you got to the end of your three years, and then what
7: happened then? Yeah, so then um, I met someone, and then I decided to to, to get the, the sponsorship, and they get married with uh, that person. And back in time, was one of the, the possibilities that I had to to, to stay here because uh, going to college was very expensive and I couldn't afford that. So that really made me uh, consider that. And then, yeah, my partner back in time like I was willing to do that. And so right now, the
0: the reason you decided to do that was because if you were going to continue here on a student visa, it was going to be expensive to pay for that education exactly. on a on a long term basis. Or you were going to be obliged to leave the country?
7: Uh, yeah, a bit of both. Because like uh, paying for the, uh, college or even like going to a master something in my area, you'd be very expensive yearly, and that's like it couldn't work and save the money to pay college.
0: Okay, and then, uh, so then yeah. marriage seemed like uh, a third option that that would allow you to stay in the country.
7: Yeah, exactly, and. Yeah, that was, like, literally, like, what made me consider that. And then it ended uh, uh, happening that way, because otherwise they would have to leave the country, yeah.
0: Okay, so how did you go about finding someone that would be willing to do that for you? Because, I suppose, just to be clear for the listeners, mm-hmm. this was a marriage of convenience for you to stay
4: here.
7: Yes, that was, like, um uh, a possibility that I found and then it was like convenient for me to stay and then to get going with what I was um, considered doing here uh, back in time.
0: Okay, so how did you find someone um, to do this with?
7: Yeah, we were working together in the same um, uh, industry and then when I uh, uh, decided to talk with someone because I didn't know what to do so that person just literally offered this, um, yeah, this way to do things because i I was already talking to to the person and then uh, it was easy to to open up and just like look this is the only the only way to stay and then but because we know we knew each other as well we had a relationship somehow uh, as a friend already before so that was easy to just like uh yeah okay. I can do that for you. It's no problem yeah you're a good guy, good person, and you can stay here, work more, keep going uh with your dreams and uh work and that will work pretty well for me
0: okay and was it a difficult process to to go through that uh to go through the marriage for you on a personal level?
7: no, because um we we knew each other and it had some relationship which was like uh, we had love, different love, as people would say, but we we knew each other, so it wasn't uh, difficult because we trust each other and we have this uh, relationship already. We had already, like, since I moved here, so it was like just like uh, more for me to really consider that I wanted to stay here longer or not. And then when the opportunity came, I was like, well, if it's that like um, what I want, why not? Like, it's a possibility.
0: Okay, and when you were going, on a practical level then, mm. when you were going through the marriage process, was there any interrogation by any authorities of your intentions or was it very easy to, to carry this out?
7: No, no, it was not. Anything like was asked, we had to go for an interview and they would ask questions uh, there at the registered office, but then not that like we had to to go for like an investigation or something before but yeah they were asking questions which we knew each other so we didn't have anything to hide and that was thing. so they were
0: asking questions to make sure that you actually knew each other and that it, it was a genuine marriage
7: yeah exactly
0: okay was that a, a nerve-wracking a, a, t- a tense experience or were you did you feel confident
3: yeah, uh, I think if
7: you didn't know each other pretty well, it'd be different. Sure. Because yeah, then the, yeah, you'd be really still, uh, you'd be feeling like yeah, someone is going to sneak in and see like we barely know each other, but we did, so yeah, it was actually fine.
0: Okay, um, well, I'm curious to know. You know, you've been here for nearly ten years, as I said at the beginning, Andy. So you know a lot of. The Brazilian community here in Dublin. Um, do you think how common do you think this type of marriage for visa is in in Ireland?
7: Um, I'd say like now, pretty much like it's more than back in time when I, I I had to do it. And but it is like again, it's the same for the same uh, reasons. And like people, they they want to stay. So I'd say like it's it's something that it turned into a easy way. So it's very common at the moment to to see if someone had done that.
0: So you're you you think it's quite common for for people to do this?
7: Yeah, not only like people from Brazil, but like there are lots of uh, other uh nationality and countries people like leaving here. They actually they cannot stay in a like a student basis. So and they they
0: actually ended up doing that as well. Okay. Do you feel do you ever feel resentful um that you in a way have been maneuvered into a position where you have to to carry out a marriage and that in the future if you do fall in love with someone and that you feel the impulse to marry that person that you won't be able to do that necessarily?
7: Um yeah, we we spoke about that before, both of us and but in in a way um when you fall in love with a person it doesn't mean that you have to get married for the sure. paper. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and that was like one of the things Because so, if someone really loves me and wanted to be with me, like I don't need to, to sign a paper to actually um how they validate that. And 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 that's my my way to think. So I don't need to. If someone cannot accept that in a way, so that's not the right person to be with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that 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 sounds like a good rationale. Mm. Finally, before I let you go, then Andy, uh, how did your family feel about this marriage of convenience, or 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 do they know about it back in Brazil?
7: Yeah, they they quite like supportive, and they were a bit. Uh, resistant at the beginning because like then uh, there are risks doing that in this way but then once they met uh, my actual partner and then like yeah well that that's, uh, that explains why uh, you're together in this way because you really like a good, you have a good relationship, you support each other, you have the love what you need so if you're not finding that love you're always going to be there for each other so what is the most important thing to think about.
0: Andy, it's not easy to share your story, so we really appreciate you giving us that insight into your experience. Thank you for joining us on Ireland's call um, on News Talk today. Um, in 2005, my next guest, Nikes, left Rwanda for France, but along the way, she decided to come to Ireland in 2014. Like many, Nikes chose Ireland, I suppose, because it was an opportunity to work in an English-speaking country and also a chance to learn about Irish culture. Um, I think you told my researcher a little earlier, um, Nikkeis, that Ireland reminds you in some ways of Rwanda. Um, I think some of our listeners might be surprised to hear that. Mm -hmm. In in what sort of ways do do we remind you of, of
8: Rwanda? Uh, yeah, so I, I think the first one is mainly around uh, the climate and the uh, not exactly the climate, but the way uh, the landscapes look like, as uh, so it's quite a green country, which uh, is has um, you know a number of hills, which remind me of my home country. So we call Rwanda a country of a thousand hills, and it's often green because of the um, it's situated just. Next to the under the equator, so it's uh, always uh, I would say um, sunny, warm. Uh, it rains often. Uh, it depends. We have seasons where it rains a lot. But the climate makes it, you know, um, easy for plants to grow and for the country to be quite green. And what
0: about the people then? Yes. The Rwandan people and the Irish people.
8: Yes, and then, you know, that, that's the second part why I love uh, Ireland and it reminds me home. home. Uh, it's the warmness and the, the openness of people. Um, I think it's something that I realized since the very first day when I arrived in Ireland. I remember I was at the airport asking for information on how to uh, to go where I was going. And before I even asked someone who was coming to me and asking me, where are you from? Where are you going? You need help. And even the days after when I um, started my work, I was surprised that the people would even offer at work to help me with the moving, you know, between hotel and houses and so on. So I found the people really very warm, very open. Easy to approach, but also easy to approach you. You, um, and that kind of reminded me of my home country because uh, people are often the same, a, a little bit maybe more, <laughs> which can be quite too um, too strange for some Europeans. But for me, it's it's just like an environment that was so easy to to, to settle in.
0: Yeah. Um, well that's good to hear. Um, do you miss Rwanda? Do you get to I mean, outside of the pandemic obviously, but do you get to go back often? Yeah,
8: yeah, I of of course I miss the country because I still have some family members there and I have friends and people I grew up with there. Um, but I get the opportunity to go uh, as I can. Like I used to go every two years but um with the pandemic, of course, it becomes hard, but I was there uh, in September, August and September. So once things kind of got calm and we got vaccinations, I was able to go back. And okay. Then,
0: so yeah. I'm curious to know then how, if you were still in Rwanda with mm. your, your professional life, would the standard of living be quite different between Ireland and Rwanda? I mean, how is... How would your life be different if you were li- still living in Rwanda?
8: Oh yeah, it's completely different. Of course, it depends uh, from person to person. From you know, um, uh, what type of work you have, what type of opportunities you have access to. I think one thing that you know um, we need to be aware of is that Rwanda is still a country in development. It's developing. It's quite developing fast, actually, compared to. Uh, how it was something like 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Uh, But it's a country that still has a lot to do in terms of, you know, um, equality of wealth between people, access to uh, things, basic things like healthcare, uh, education, uh, you know, infrastructure and so on. But it's a country that also presents like, you know, between the different cities. I think if you go to the main capital, which is Kigali, you see that the standard of life is all, almost comparable to what we have here in European countries, in Dublin as well. And even sometimes, you, you know, for wealthy people, it can be even better. You you can live an easy life. But still you are in that environment where you can see, you know, the other side of the city, people suffering, people don't, working hard to be able to live and people willing to work but not finding work. So for me, um, I think in Ireland, we are quite lucky and blessed, you know, to be able to have opportunities to find work. I think, you know, if I compare to even other European um, cities, Dublin is a place where, um, of course, you know, you can search, but it's a little bit easier to find uh, work in different areas. But also if I fall sick, you know, I can go to the hospital, I will be welcomed and they, we provided care before you know anything you know whereas in some places like if I compare to uh to uh, my uh, other countries like in Rwanda you need to have a health care and some people can't access to health care
0: you need to have so, health insurance a
8: health insurance yeah. yeah and that's something that can be priced of course they tr- the country but has I mean if you presented
0: it, at a hospital in Rwanda and you didn't have health insurance would you be looked after
8: you will be looked after, but you might get, uh, you know, um, like you might have a debt to pay
0: after ah, okay. living. And
8: I, I know some cases of people. Even if
0: you have a very low income.
8: Yes. Yeah, so they will, they've they tried in the past years to make sure that people who have low income uh, get, you know, facilitated to access health care, which is a great thing that they did. But if I look back in the past five years, for example, could be held at the hospital because he didn't have an option to pay. It's interesting
0: you, what you're yeah. saying about standard of living, Nikais, yeah. because one of our texters, Pat, just sent in a message. He says, I would be interested to know what immigrants think about the cost of living here. It must be a shock.
8: Yes. Now, the cost of living in Dublin is quite high. And um, I think, um, of course, again, depending on the personal conditions. Some people earn a lot. If I compare also the salaries compared to other cities and, you know, countries here, I I may be easily say that the salaries are quite high. But when you look at uh, the cost of basic things like, you know, rent, like uh, food and stuff like that, it can be easily quite high. I think, you know, I think, for me, Dublin is one of the places where I've seen that, you know, when you look at, for example, renting a room, just a single room, and uh, not having a possibility to get even, you know, sometimes a decent one under 700 euros, and uh, look at the minimum salary for the, the average minimum salary for the, the people here. If you compare it to other countries, it's completely different. i give you an example. When I was living in France... I used to uh, pay for a two-bedroom house, something around 600 euros. Yeah, I can't wow. get even a room. Wow. You know? That's France, our neighbor. <laughs> That's France, yeah. Of course, it's another city. It's not a capital sure, city. Sure. But um But when you look at the conditions here, and then even when you look at the evolution in the past years, because when I first came, you could easily get uh, a bedroom for 700 euros. Now the same, you can get it around 1,000 or even sometimes more. So it keeps increasing, of, uh, and I really admire the regulations that they put in place to limit, to cap the increases every year. But it, if it wasn't for that, I think it was a bit hard to manage for you know, many foreigners, and I think even for Irish people uh, who live here, it must be quite high.
0: Nike's it's mm-hmm. fantastic to to hear your story. We wish mm-hmm. you continued success Thank with you. your, your life and career here in Dublin. Ishmael says, I'm new Irish in that I am 100% genetically Irish and I've lived here all of my life. However, I have reverted to Islam and I wear a hijab. It's very novel to be shouted at to go back to your own country. Um, wow, that's that's very interesting and, and disturbing. Thank you for it. That was a twi- uh, tweet, actually. You can tweet me at Tierney Simon. Now, my next guest is Erin Carroll. Erin came to Ireland from the US in the middle of the pandemic last year. She is now the CEO of Tenny. Tenny is the Trans Equality Network of Ireland. Erin, you're... Uh, you're going to tell us about your experience. Um, I'm I'm very keen to get your perspective, and thank you for joining us on uh, Ireland's call. Tell me, what has your experience been so far as someone who was born outside of Ireland and coming here to live?
9: Yeah, well, thank you so much for for reaching out and having me today on the show, um, because like it is such an important conversation about the immigrant experience. I think for you know myself like growing up you know in, in the states there always was like an affection for ireland um and you know that was within my own family um and so it was a real joy to kind of like have the opportunity to get to move to ireland um but since i've been here there's been so much kind of discrimination that i have faced um for being here and and part of it wonders like oh is it the accent that gives it away but more importantly too like being a trans immigrant in Ireland has been a challenge because people see me, and for example, I might be taller than expected, um, and so there's been, you know, a lot of people that have, you know, just started shouting out transphobic slurs um, whenever I go out of the flat, you know, to go go, go get groceries or, or to go for a walk or to walk into the office. You know, there's there's people that you know have come up and just said horrible things Um, and it's even caused me actually to have to move apartments while living in Dublin which is its own challenge because like the rent is so expensive for a single person so like you know for me like you know some of the things that that stick out as like the most dangerous like things were coming out of my flat and just my my dad back in the states had sent me a birthday present so just walking to kind of the shop to pick it up you know because that was the drop-off point you know, I'm picking it up and I'm walking back with this package and you know a group of, of kids, like I guess teenagers, come by on their scooters and just like circle around me and start yelling out all of these transphobic slurs. And then I'm just like, stop, stop. And then all of a sudden like you hear the accent and they're like, oh no, it's like, you know, they, they say more stuff and the people in the street start kind of joining in and laughing and you know, you're sprinting down Parnell Street back to your apartment just to get to a safe place you know, that's just kind of what what I've experienced. Aaron, it's really
0: interesting that you say that um, about young people, teenagers. um, The survey that we carried out uh, for News Talk about the immigrant experience, we got quite a lot of comments, I have to say, about gangs of teens, uh, groups of young people hanging around on street corners, uh representing a rather intimidating presence um to our immigrant community, and that seems very much to have been your experience that the the people that are that are
9: taunting you tend to be younger people yeah and and I think like it's it's really kind of something that's like you just don't expect um and and I think part of it like might be part of the pandemic of like you know like at the time you know schools weren't in session, you know a lot of kids are remote. And there's nothing to do. Um, and so like there's just kind of these these roving groups and you don't know what you're going to expect because there's just a lot of them. And you're just trying to go about your business and like, yeah, you face it. And it's just like you don't want to say it as an adult, but it really is like it's it's terrifying because you don't know what's going to happen.
0: OK, well, first of all, I'm really sorry that that has been your experience. Um, it makes me very sad to hear that. Secondly, I think it's really important that we as Irish people recognise that perhaps we're kidding ourselves a little bit here. We often think that young people who are going through our education systems at the moment are more trans-aware, are more accepting of diversity, are more educated on these issues. And from what you're saying, Aaron, and indeed from the research that we have carried out in news talk, that doesn't seem to be the case in the real world, and I think that's very disturbing. Um, what are we doing wrong with our education system, Erin, if young people who are learning about diversity
9: that it isn't transferring into the real world? Yeah, I don't like. I I wouldn't want to criticise like the entire education system. But I do think there are big gaps in in understanding. And I think over the last year and a half, there's also been a, a cultural rise in kind of transphobia. Um, you know, a lot of it has started on, on online presence. But, you know, our, our teenagers and our young people and most of society is on Twitter. So a lot of these conversations and these attacks on who trans people are and posing trans people as threats, starts to seep down. For example, like if you read, if your parents are engaging with with people on Twitter that are saying hurtful things, then this comes across maybe at a dinner table conversation. And then like the teenager starts to hear this and they're like, well, this person, you know, that's someone I should be afraid of, or I should question or should be intimidated by. And it leads into these things. And I think what we need to do overall is like do a cultural awareness campaign, do an education campaign of talking about the fact that that trans people and gender expansive people, were really just here trying to go about our lives. Like, you know, we're trying to go get our our groceries, we're trying to go pick up packages, we're trying to walk to work or ride the bus. Like, there's no ulterior agenda. And I think what's going on is just with the pandemic have isolating so many people, there's been this loss of community. And that kind of leads into this, this attack. I mean, even in my own itself like there was a credible death threat put in against me that the guardie found out about out and it it came from one of these internet subgroups that said oh well this is Erin Carroll she's an immigrant this is where she works and if you see her you know harm her physically intimidate her and you think about that and it's it's kind of this thing that has started online and it's this this cultural conversation that I think we need to start having of Ireland is diverse, just as the rest of the world is diverse, and that's actually really awesome, and that's really great for where the country can go, but we have to start by understanding that with that diversity, there's going to be those growing pains of welcoming and accepting that newness to a way of life that's not the same as it was before.
0: Aaron, thank you for sharing your story with us. Aaron Carroll is the CEO of TENI, the Trans Equality Network of Ireland. You are listening to Ireland's Call here on News Talk. My next guest, Lucy, uh, she came to Ireland in 2017 with her family. She's lived in many countries before coming here. She's originally from Brazil. Lucy, um, you say that you've experienced both extremes when it comes to the Irish what do you mean by that exactly?
10: Hi, hi. Um, well, I, we met a lot, a lot of very welcoming people, very kind people. You know, I think it's all around the world, really. But uh, the other extreme, I, I'm not sure if it was bad luck or if it was bad experience. Like people are not so open to to us in that sense, I, I guess.
0: Okay, so you, uh, just so that we can fill in our, our audience a little bit, so you are, your parents or one of your parents is, is Japanese, um, which is very common in Brazil because there was a huge amount of immigration, Japanese immigration into Brazil in the early 20th century. Um, uh, so yes. when, when Irish people encounter you, are they confused by the by your diversity, so to speak? Is that what you're saying?
10: Yes, mostly. Yeah, when I say I'm from Brazil, they get quite shocked because my features are are Asian, right? So I have uh, very dark hair, straight dark hair, uh, very Asian features. So when I say, oh, I'm from Brazil, they get confused because I think they have this stereotype of Brazilian people, like dark skin, maybe, Um, you know, like uh, uh, brown skin, kind of tall, and I'm quite short, Asian, very Asian style, yes. So I think they get confused in that sense, yes.
0: Okay, and how has it been for your children here in Ireland socially?
10: Well, um, we put them in educated together just because um, our family is very um, diverse. my husband is Greek, so he 's from Greece, so uh we have very different culture, so we put them in a in a place that we think they will be more open minded so uh yeah, my daughter is six, so she goes to primary school and educated together because we really think it's the ethos we we will follow uh so it's been it's been great because it's been um It's a different culture all around. All the children are very in different backgrounds, so I think it suits as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I hope they have a good experience as their as their education progresses. Lucy, thank you so much for your call, Lucy from Brazil. We're going to another caller now as we reach the end of the program, but I think we have time to squeeze another in. Um, Sergio, welcome to Ireland's call on News Talk. You came to Ireland quite a long time ago, in 2004. How, do you fi- how did you find the Irish when you, when you first arrived here, Sergio?
11: Hi, how are you? Uh, really good, really good. I, as, I, as you said, uh, I came in 2004 and uh, I found most of the Irish people, uh, and non-Irish people, quite welcoming to 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 foreign people, to to people from other countries.
0: Okay, uh, what do you do for for work here?
11: Uh, I'm a pharmacist, so I had a, quite a good bit of contact uh, with with a, a lot of people from from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, so you have a lot of interfacing with with customers and the like. Um, how has it been for the pandemic? Obviously, Spain was one of the first countries in Europe to be very severely impacted. By the pandemic, um, I understand that things are a lot better there now. Have you been able to get back to Spain since things calmed down, Sergio?
11: Yeah, we were able to fly back to Spain after the, after we were allowed to to fly again. That was one of the first things that we did as a family, uh, and but luckily enough as well, my dad was able to, uh, to come a couple of times, uh, here. So we were able to to see each other. But the first. What what was it? The first year, year and a half was pretty pretty tough.
0: Okay, I'm curious. Before I let you go, how do you find socializing in Ireland compared to Spain? Because a lot of Irish people obviously go to Spain on holidays all the time, and they love the the social, the evenings, the the nighttime economy of of Spain. How do you find it in Ireland as a Spanish person?
11: It's uh it's quite different. I think I think that. Um, in Spain, we, we 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 socialize in a different way. We go more out not only at night. We go before lunch. We go after lunch. We go for a for a cup of coffee. We go for a small drink. While I think here, especially when they go abroad, is more into the party, uh, into the in, into partying. And as well, when you go out at night, I find here that people are more focused maybe on on having kind of like a party attitude more than uh, socializing with with the friends, but again, like I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know too much about it because we we are a family and we don't go out that much.
0: Sergio from Spain, living in Ireland since 2004. Thank you so much for joining us on Ireland's call. Um, one of our texters says it's very important and sad to hear experiences of racism by immigrants um, or directed at immigrants. Why can't people realise that diversity is good, exciting and a positive thing for Ireland? That text message is from Alan. Thank you for sending that in. We've had so much interaction with the programme today and I'm so sorry that we've only been able to get to a fraction of it. And that is all we have time for today. I'm Simon Tierney. Thank you for joining us on Ireland's Call. Ireland's Call with Simon Tierney
3: This is News Talk